1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: What makes a real disciple and what that is, is this, the embrace and obedience to his word. Obedience is the difference between withstanding life's storm and the slings and arrows that this world will throw at you and collapsing under the weight of the hardship of this fallen, broken world and all the problems that it brings to our doorstep. Success is defined as recognizing and knowing and doing the will of God, failure, is defined as ignoring it. I can
0: see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every dragon will fall
1: Senior Pastor at Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are so happy that you've chosen to spend time with us on the program today. And as always, we would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, Pastor Keith continues our walk through the Sermon on the Mount with his successful Kingdom Living teaching series. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us today to the Gospel of Matthew, Chapter 7. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Let me sort of set up the background for the Sermon on the Mount. In, in Matthew's Gospel, where it's found, this is a Gospel written for the Jewish mindset. You know, there are four Gospels. Matthew is written for the Jewish mind. Jesus is the Messiah. This is who he is. This is what he believes. Mark is written for the Roman mind. Luke is written for the Greek mind. And John is written for everyone. And so we are here In Matthew's Gospel he's going to be speaking to his disciples right beneath his feet and there are these crowds all around him and he's going to lay out for them the Jewish law as it was meant to be taught God's Word as it was meant to be understood now this comes after this comes after John the Baptist identifying him as the Messiah the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world this comes after his baptism where Jesus rises up out of the water and the spirit descends on him in the form of a dove and the father's voice is heard to say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's your trinity, by the way, all in one place, all at one time. And this is after him going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He's come out. He's been teaching and preaching. He's drawing lots of crowds. John the Baptist certainly didn't hurt any by identifying him as the Messiah. And so he calls some of his disciples to him, the 12. They go up on a mountain. He sits down, the masses follow him, and we read this in, uh, in, in Matthew chapter five, verse one. And seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, and he begins to teach. He teaches about our inward heart attitudes. He teaches about how our, ha- how our inward heart attitudes didn't manifest themselves through worship, through service, through giving through our interactions with people. He describes how a Christian thinks, how a Christ follower thinks. He describes how a Christ follower understands the law. It's not a series of rules. It's a series of attitudes that are manifested through outward behavior. The Word of God is just not some legalistic rule book, but it is a mindset. It is written, and he says it is written you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he clarifies the law. It's an exposition of the Jewish teaching. It's an exposition of the Old Testament. And it begins that he sits down and he opens his mouth and he says and begins to teach them. And it ends like this Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a, wa- a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on this house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Some translations indicate overwhelmed. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Now this Sermon on the Mount is about 2,491 English words. Who's counting? But that's what it is in the ESV. In the Greek New Testament, it's about 2,100 words because Greek is a more effective and more colorful language than English. It probably took less than a half hour to deliver, probably more like 20 to 25 minutes. And when he was done... They were bowled over because what he describes for them are the keys to successful kingdom living. And then at the end, he, he, explain, he gives the point of the whole message. And today, as we begin the Sermon on the Mount, we want to understand it's just not a code of conduct necessarily. It's not some quaint, you know, the secular world loves the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't written to be admired but obeyed. And we need to understand the point of the passage. So to rightly introduce the Sermon on the Mount, we begin in Matthew 7:24 to 29. Now, why is this? Because it seems counterintuitive. Why do we begin at the end? And the reason is simply this. The Sermon on the Mount is what we call an inductive sermon. What does that mean? For the Jewish mind, for even today, the Asian mind, uh, people reasoned inductively. They generalized a principle from a number of principles. And what they did in those days is they might have told a story or had a teaching and they begin in the general and they end in the specific. In Western thought, in American thought, Canadian thought, European thought, you begin with an idea or a thesis and you expand it to many, many applications. But in most of the rest of the world, you begin with a number of principles and and it comes down to a big idea. That's called an inductive sermon. It is not to be confused with inductive bible study they there are two different animals they are related but basically it's a different form of reasoning and we look at the next slide here so first he opens his mouth to teach and he gives them the beatitudes and the application of beatitudes and the heart and soul of the law in matthew 5 17 to 48 spiritual practices in john chapter six uh... verses one through eighteen he talks about priorities in, Ma- in matthew chapter six nineteen through thirty four he talks about wisdom and discernment in Matthew 7, 1 through 12, he talks about the actions and the fruit that are born out of that and how we think and live. In Matthew seven thirteen to 23, and then he tells us why. Then he gives us the big idea of the sermon. And because we, we don't think like they do, we're going to start at the end in this introductory sermon so you'll know why. You see, it's like this. When you have the keys to successful kingdom living, if you don't know what success is or what success means then all these instructions don't do you a whole lot of good and so for them he delivers what some people call a punchline sermon the big idea comes at the end not at the beginning he gives them all these principles and then they find out why they should listen to him and and, and in so doing they begin to realize who he is and you know this is not the only uh, sermon like this in the bible in fact there are a lot of these in the Bible. and Here's another example of inductive sermons, of inductive thinking. Nathan confronts David, and at the end he goes, Ataha ish, you are the man. He tells the story, and the punchline comes. Ecclesiastes says, I tried this, and I tried that, and I did this, and I did that, and I realized. In Ecclesiastes at the end of the message, When all is said and done, fear God and keep his commands. John's gospel, you hear all the seven signs, the seven words Jesus said on the cross, all the things he's said and did, and at the end of it, you are told, these things are written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, you have eternal life. The Sermon on the Mount, same thing. Stephen to the Sanhedrin, he tells the whole history of the Jewish people. He's been accused of all these crimes. He's been threatened. He's defending himself, and he walks them through the Old Testament, and at the end of it, he goes... You're just like everybody before you who killed the prophets, and you've killed Christ. There's this punchline. Peter at Pentecost talks about these men aren't drunk. This is who Jesus is. He walks through everything, and at the end he says, And know therefore that this man, God has made both Lord and Christ, this man whom you crucified. There's the punchline. And Paul on Mars Hill, he's speaking to the Greeks. I see you're very religious. And I, can, I see this all these statues, and I saw this plaque that said to the unknown God and this is the God I declare to you and he begins to talk about the nature of God and then he tells them God has given us assurance that the time is now for repentance and he has proven it to us by delivering this message through one man this man whom he raised from the dead those are all inductive sermons those are all punchline sermons those are all one-point sermons in reverse that begin with all the applications and end with the thesis. And that's why we're handling the Sermon on the Mount this way. It isn't just some crazy innovation. I'm telling you this so you can know why we're starting at the beginning and then moving into the Beatitudes next week. Does that make sense? Okay, well, we won't take a vote. Just trust me. And I feel relatively good about it because a large part of my doctoral dissertation is, is this. So I understand the structure somewhat having studied it for three to five years. So let's again start in, in Matthew chapter 7 verses 24 to 29, because what we have here is success defined. You cannot live successfully until you understand what success is. And so we begin with success defined. And this isn't success as the world defines success. This is success as Christ defines success. Matthew 7, 24 to 29, again. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, blessed are the poor in spirit, right, all these words, You've heard it said, but I say to you all these words. Everyone then who hears these words of mine of mine, and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell... And the floods came and the wind blew against that house and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes, not as their normal teachers. Jesus here, you know, provides them a parable to understand what it takes to follow him. The key to successful kingdom living, he describes success to them. We see that he gives this parable and we see their reaction to it. And and what is this parable? Well, this parable could be a tale of two houses built or a tale of two lives lived or it could be a tale of two contrasting priorities. And so we have to consider the content of what we just read. And let me just walk you through that right now and then we'll get into the putting this to work in our lives. What we have here is Jesus in Matthew 7:24 to 27, comparing and contrasting two mindsets, the godly and the godless. The tricky part here is what he's really dealing with is those who profess to be his disciples. Today we'd call them professing Christians. And those who are his disciples, those are who are truly, truly born-again Christians. Anybody can profess to be something, I can profess to be blonde, it doesn't make itself. So. so. what we see here in this passage is that both people have heard the gospel or the way of salvation. They've heard Jesus' message, everyone who hears these words of mine. Each one then uh, maps out his own way of living. Basically, you know, he, each one decides what to do. And so we have this tale of successful kingdom living contrasted with a tale of collapse and failure. Both receive the teaching, both sit through the teaching They're both represented out there in the crowd. And in the crowd, you have his disciples and you have everybody else. And so both hear the same message. The wise man hears and obeys. He receives what is said. He digests it. He ingests it. And he integrates it into his life. He builds his house, his life, around the teachings of Jesus Christ. He receives and obeys Christ's instruction. The foolish man is entirely different. He hears the same message. But he follows his heart. He follows not God's priorities, but his own. Not God's will, but his own. The wise man follows Christ. Now, each builds his respective house. Each lives his life expecting to stand. No one sets out to fail. Cognitively, intentionally, purposefully. And I imagine if you look at the crowd before Jesus, they all look alike pretty much. They all are from the same area, the same culture. They resemble each other. Each man builds his respective house, intending it to stand, and outwardly, even, outwardly, they look the same. Now, in that area, they had these periodic seasonal rains. And depending on what you built your house on, the rains might come and wash your house away if you built it on the sand. But if you built it on a good foundation, it would withstand these rains. So Jesus is giving them something they can understand and identify with. Each house outwardly looks the same. But beneath the surface, they're built very differently. And grounded and founded upon very, very different foundations. Now, each is subject to the same conditions and situations. Suffering is something that every human being is going to experience. Hardship is something that every human being is going to experience and can expect. Neither of these people are escaping hardship. But each responds differently. One house, one way of living, withstanding everything that is thrown at it. The other, collapsing into a heap of rubbish with a loud crash. Great was its fall. So what do we have here? What do we have here? Well, we have successful, We have success described. We have success defined for us. He describes what makes a real disciple. And what that is, is this. The embrace obedience to his word obedience is the difference between withstanding life's storm and the slings and arrows that this world will throw at you and collapsing under the weight of the hardship of this fallen broken world and all the problems that it brings to our doorstep success is defined as recognizing and knowing and doing the will of God failure is defined as ignoring it Jesus's point here is simple it's the point of the entire sermon it's not simply enough to hear Jesus' call, and even respond to it with a temporary flurry of good deeds and outward, outward works. On the contrary, we have to build our lives upon it uh, with a solid foundation that combines an authentic commitment to Christ with a persevering obedience, with an enduring obedience. One man put it this way, and I mentioned this earlier, the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be admired, but obeyed. I remember somebody saying to a Christian brother once, you know, I don't believe what you believe, but I think it's beautiful. And the brother goes, is it true? He goes, well, I don't think so. He goes, well, how can it be beautiful? If I believe the lie, it's the ugliest, worthless, terriblest, terriblest, whatever, thing one can imagine. Don't tell me that you admire it, that you think it's beautiful. If it's not true, it's uglier than ugly. The world loves Jesus, at least their impression of him. Many, many professing Christians like what they hear, you know, Blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, blessed are the peacemakers and things like that. But they really don't care to understand and apply it to their lives. They don't care to make it their, their constitution, if you want to call it that. An outwardly religious lifestyle is simply not enough. And the foolish man's shallow thinking lays a shallow foundation on the sand. He cannot be troubled with thinking things through because he's too busy. And when trial comes, he greatly suffers you know it's it's like us today he's probably busy with stuff he's preoccupied with having a house a life that simply looks nice from the outside fitting in being accepted and sure his house looks somewhat like the wise man's house but when you examine the difference in the foundations you see while one thrives and one fails success is defined as recognizing christ for who he is our authority and governing ourselves in light of his teachings that's why in verses 28 and 29 we, we see this they hear him teach this they hear him say this the one who listens to me is wise the one who doesn't listen to me is a fool everyone who hears these sayings of mine but does not respond is a fool and in verse 28 we read this when jesus finished these sayings the crowds were astonished at his teaching for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes you see in that day people never really taught the bible they say well Rabbi Rafi says this. Rabbi, rabbi Rashi says this. And what happens is they're quoting other men and he's saying, these teachings of mine, I am the authority. And they're astonished because no self-respecting rabbi in their day would claim to be the authority. But he's already been marked out by John the Baptist as the Messiah. He's already done works and, said th- and done things that indicate that he's not a normal, everyday, average guy. And so he does this incredible teaching which turns their understanding of their world and their law upside down. He clarifies it for them. He doesn't just deal with the letter, but the spirit, the heart of it. And when he's done, they're shocked. They're, they're, they're awed. Talk about shock and awe in the old days, right? He's, they're looking at him. And what we learn from all this is that rightly defining success will make all the difference in our lives. Rightly understanding success will make all the difference in our lives when hardship comes and they and hardships will come the storms of life will come they'll come to you in different shapes and forms and sizes and at different times and there is no cramming for life you can cram for for a board test you can cram for a quiz at school you can cram for some sort of exam but you can't cram for life your house your home your life your family you have to be grounded and founded upon this one-of-a-kind foundation. Everything else is sand. It'll, it'll twist, it'll turn, it'll wash away. And your life as you knew it will perish. So, how can we successfully live and serve Jesus? How can we do that? What does it take? Well, this is really both the points in your in your bulletin and this is also the application of the sermon as well. How can we successfully live, love, and serve Jesus? It really comes down to... to obeying him and recognizing him as the authority. So let's understand a couple of critical things about defining success as Christ defines success. And to do that, we need to understand the success is defined and understood by answering two questions in the affirmative. By you, not answering to me, not answering to anyone else, but to you answering in your own heart before God, the answer, answering these two questions. And the first question is this, do I faithfully seek to embrace Christ's word? Do I seek to embrace Christ's word? Do I seek to drink it in, to digest it, to turn it over in my mind and to understand it? Where do I get that question from? It's a response to verses 24 and 25. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. Why? Because it was founded on the rock. Is your thinking founded, driven, controlled, influenced by the word of Christ, the Bible, the word of God? A wise person li- listens to Jesus, listens to God, and does what he or she learns from God. And the question is, do I? Do you? Do we? A stable life is found in Christ, no matter the circumstances. I can tell you from experience that if you don't have Christ, you will not be able to withstand The slings and arrows and hardships that this world throws at you. You won't have a context to make sense of your existence, to make sense of the tragedy or the hardship. Jesus' teachings here are are likened to a rock solid foundation. In Christ, we can weather the storms of life, no matter how difficult they are. And you guys have all experienced suffering and hardship. Some of you are experiencing it right now. And the difference between success or failure is your relationship and your understanding of God's will. Of God's ways. The fool says in his heart in Psalm 50, 53 1 there is no God. He doesn't say it with his lips. He says it in his heart. He may outwardly profess Christ but inwardly he just lives. He's building his house upon all these sandy foundations. He doesn't listen. He doesn't hear. He doesn't read. He doesn't respond to Christ's word. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. People who have their own ideas about serving God fail to honor God. Sometimes they say, well, I know it says this, but, you know, we have to be practical. We're we're living in the 21st century. We can't do that. We can't think that way. I'm going to do a sermon series called Non-GMO Churches, either in the fall or in January. It really talks about how we've genetically modified the church and the way we do ministry as a culture and understand why. Christianity in some quarters seems to be contracting instead of expanding because it's built its house upon the sand. We have been given a clear prescription of what successful living looks like. Jesus has defined success for us. And the question is, will we follow him or will we follow our hearts? Will we build on a rock solid foundation or will we build a shallow foundation based on the sand?